Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you all. Nikki said at the very end there, we are family. And that's going to be a point of emphasis in what we're going to talk about today. We love and we encourage each other uh, like family. And that's a beautiful picture of that. Before we get started, I want to let you know about a date correction for something that's coming up because it isn't correct in some of the written information that is out there, and that is about parent-child dedication. Now, the parent-child dedication has been moved, and so the orientation for parent-child dedication is next week. If that applies to you, the orientation is next week between services, and then the dedication itself is on August 13th. So orientation next week on the 23rd. Dedication on August 13th, if that happens to apply to you. Yes, it's uh, wonderful to be here today. I have some really good news for you. A group of wonderful people got together yesterday and baked new communion bread. Right? Is that exciting? Yes. Uh, someone described the, the wafer on one of those packets as the thing that seals the syrup bottle under the lid that you peel off. You know what I'm talking about? That little white piece of plastic. You won't have to eat that today. So uh, I see a few people here who were help uh, put that together. So thankful for what you've done. And we will all benefit today as we eat that communion bread together. Absolutely. This is our last week in our Romans Road sermon series. We have gone through the entire book of Romans, and today we arrive at Romans 16, the final chapter. Now, Romans 16 isn't going to appear up on the screen today, so I want to encourage you to open there in your Bibles, in your devices. There are actually some Bibles in the back if you need a Bible, uh, but it won't be up on the screen, so you're going to want to open up so that you can follow along. And I want to encourage us to just take a moment quiet our hearts and pray before the Lord as we enter into a time in his word. Would you just quietly with me right now, thank the Holy Spirit for inspiring these words and for illuminating his people so that they come to rest upon us. Would you thank him for the privilege that it is to meet with the living God Would you pray for the Spirit to, to open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to what God has for us today? God, we ask that you'd move through this time. We don't want to be the same at the end. Continue to transform and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have all heard, seen, read about stories where someone had treasure in their possession and didn't realize it. I read a story a little while ago about a guy who had a condo in New York City and he called 1-800-GOT-JUNK to come and pick up a bunch of his garbage. And so they came and picked it up and the guy who was driving the 1-800-GOT-JUNK truck came and was unloading all of the garbage and his eye was struck by a particular uh, statue about this big. He said, oh, that's weird looking. I like weird looking stuff. 
So he grabbed it out of the garbage, brought it home, and set it in his garage. Several months later, he decided to try and take it to someone to find out what it was. And it turns out that it was a Mayan relic from 500 B.C., valued at tens of thousands of dollars. In another situation, a man in Maine had a painting in his closet that he considered so ugly he would never hang it in his home. It had been passed down to him from his great aunt. And he put it in a pile of things that he was going to discard and a friend of his came by and said, you, you should probably get that checked out before you throw it away. And so he took it in and he got it checked out and it turns out that it was painted by Pablo Picasso and was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right? Anybody going home to check their closets? <laughs> what? what? What do I have in there? What do I have in there? Do I have a great aunt? What did she pass down to me? Ah, yes. We've all heard these accounts about someone who had treasure in their possession but didn't recognize it, didn't realize it, and it reminds me of my approach to the passage that we're going to study today. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I think you'll catch on as we read it together. Uh, normally, when we read something like Romans 16, I'd have us all stand and all read it together in unison. But, for, but today, for reasons that I think will be obvious, I'm going to have you go ahead and stay seated, and I'm going to read the passage to you. All right, Let, let's read it. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apennatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephena and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Ancicritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I'm going to go on in a second, but aren't you glad I didn't ask you to read this with me at this point? <sighs> Yikes. All right. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my, hey, I got that one right. Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Those people who have uh, had treasure in their possession but haven't recognized it or have even discarded it remind me of the way that I have often approached Romans chapter 16 or the couple of other passages that are like it in the New Testament, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? I get to Romans chapter 16 in my Bible reading. I've read Romans several times, and my brain immediately says, oh, a names passage. Let's get moving. Oh, oh, a greeting passage. Okay, I suppose i got to read it. But then, but then I, I read it as fast as I possibly can. You might not even call it reading. You might call it retinizing what I am looking at. And then I move on to some other place in the Bible reading. I'm confident I'm the only one who has ever done that with one of these passages. Over time, what I discovered is that if I'll slow down and spend a little bit of time in there, there's treasure. I may not have recognized it as I've come to this over and over again, but there's treasure in there. And I want to share a little bit of the treasure of Romans chapter 16 with you this morning. And it starts with the great big point of the chapter, and that is that we are all in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. Look at the number of times he calls attention to this. In the Lord, you're in Christ Jesus, you're in Christ, in the Lord, in Christ, in Christ, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. You get the idea. What are we if we're followers of Jesus? We are in Christ. This is an important concept for us because in modern American Christianity, we often focus on the idea that Christ is in us. I invited Jesus to come into my life, right? Christ in the Spirit dwells in me, and that is a correct and biblical concept, right? If if I were to put this up in pictures, we often focus on the concept on the right side, that, that I've invited Jesus into my life and Christ dwells in me. Again, a correct and biblical concept, but what I want us to understand is Ten times more often, the New Testament speaks of us being in Christ than it speaks of Christ or the Spirit being in us. Ten times more often, it speaks of us being in Christ. Why is that important? It's important because if we only have the view of Christ being in us, we may treat our relationship with Jesus 
in an individualistic way. It's just me and Jesus. But the New Testament knows nothing of that kind of individualistic Christianity. You have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that personal relationship is also a community relationship that we have with the Lord. And that is seen in the language, in Christ. And so that unhealthy American tendency to see everything through an individualistic lens, the phrase, in Christ, goes to battle with that and says, no, you're a part of a community that's in Christ together. The other thing that it battles is the self-orientation. If the only language we have is that Christ comes to dwell in us, well, then I begin to think of myself as pretty important. I mean, you know, Christ wants to dwell in me. That makes me pretty good. And pretty soon, it's all about me and all about what I want and all about Christ fulfilling my dreams that I've had since I was two years old. The language in Christ helps us to recognize that life with Christ is all about us becoming like Him. It's all about us being conformed to the image of Christ within His family and His kingdom. And it battles that self-orientation. I'm not suggesting that we get rid of the language of Christ being in us. That's biblical language. But sometimes in our society, it's the only language that we use. And it's important for us to have a balance here so that we don't stray into a self-orientation or an individualistic understanding of our relationship with Christ. He wants us to understand we are community before Him, that it is all about Him in what we do. And now the rest of Romans chapter 16, as I'm going to unpack it, shows beautiful, beautiful results of us being in Christ. Starting with this, in Christ We have a common bond. We have a common bond in Jesus. There are all sorts of things where we have similarities in life and differences. For example, uh, I am a man. Some of you in the room share that category with me. Others in the room do not. I'm also a husband. Some of you in the room share that with me. Others in the room do not. I am also a Vikings fan. Most of you in the room share that with me. There's a few people, I see Paul over here, that are a little, whoo, that do not. Right? They they have other favorite teams. Part of what the Scripture wants us to understand over and over again is There are a lot of things in life where we may share some similarities with people and we may share some some differences with people. And if we compare enough categories, we find differences with everybody in different places. But the Scripture wants us to understand that us being in Christ is such a strong common bond that everything else is meant to fade into the background as unimportant by comparison. In Galatians chapter 3... Uh, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he writing here? He says, you're in Christ. That's the primary bond. 
It isn't that there's no longer any more males and females on the earth. There are. It isn't that there's no longer any more Jews and non-Jews. There are. It isn't that there weren't any more slaves and free on the earth. There was in his day, and, and we would still say, there's workers and the people they work for today. All of those categories still exist. But what Paul wants us to understand is they are all unimportant compared to the one great category that we all share of being in Christ Jesus together. That is the one great unifying category, and it's such a strong bond that the only way that it can properly be expressed is through the terminology of family. That we have a bond in here that is a family bond, the way that family is meant to be. And so Paul, in our passage, uses this language, our sister, my kinsman or family member, my beloved, my beloved, my kinsman, the beloved, the brothers, brothers, my kinsman, our brothers. You can see the family language that permeates this passage as Paul talks about brothers and sisters and fellow family members. We are to love each other as a part of this family community the way that family should. Now listen, I, I want you to notice the word should. Right? Did you catch that? Because sometimes we've grown up in or seen family that goes against God's design. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad worked with a guy whose, whose own father had regularly hit him across the small of the back with a two-by-four when he was frustrated. On a couple of occasions, he'd hit him across the back with a two-by-four that had nails sticking out of it, and he still had the scars from the puncture wounds across the small of his back where his dad had hit him with this over and over again. That's not what Paul's talking about when he says, I want you to be family to each other, right? The way family is meant to be. Sometimes when we think of family, we think of people who have abandoned us. We think of people who have abused us, mistreated us. That's not what Paul's talking about when he calls us family. He has this beautiful and ideal God-oriented understanding of family that he has in mind when he calls us brothers and sisters Beloved kinsman, I, I got a chance to see what I think Paul was talking about six weeks ago at my son's wedding with the way that my daughter treated her brother. Now, I could go back through the years and give you all kinds of stories about the two of them mistreating each other in ways that Paul would say, no, not like that. But at my son's wedding six weeks ago, my daughter went through those five days before the wedding constantly seeking to support, encourage, stop and pray for her brother, spend time with him. He, he had a lot going on in those few days. Uh, th there was some emotional stuff that he was dealing with. He had a couple of people in the wedding party that were uh, not super helpful at times. There were all sorts of tasks that needed to be accomplished. And so he was a little bit like, eh, like that. And she just walked with him through those days before the wedding, constantly encouraging, constantly building him up, constantly stopping and saying, why don't we pray right now? Let's spend a few minutes in prayer. She, she gave a, a beautiful, she was his best man, best woman, whatever you call it. And she gave a beautiful speech. And there was a, a hug at the front after she walked to the front 
that uh, enlivens a dad's heart. But none of that matters compared to the kind of support she showed him behind the scenes in the days leading up. Again, I could give you plenty of examples from our family of them acting in ways where Paul would say, no, not like that. But that week, she was a beautiful example of what Paul has in mind when he says, we are brothers and sisters in Christ who love who encourage, who care for each other in that way. And when I was making the 15-hour the drive home from Montana, uh, my wife slept through about eight hours of it. And I sat there behind the wheel with tears running down my face, just thinking about the beautiful nature of the way my daughter had cared for my son over the course of that last week. And I, I, I use this as an illustration because that is what Paul has in mind for all of us. That we are all family who love each other, care with each other, stand with each other, and encourage each other in the way that God designed brothers and sisters to love and care for each other. Uh, God has made us in Christ to have this common family bond. It's a beautiful bond that we share together. But it's not the only thing that this passage shows us is true in Christ. In Christ, we also have a common battle. We not only stand together in common bond as family, but we stand arm in arm on the battlefield as soldiers. And we have a common battle. Listen to verses 19 and 20. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We see here there is a battle between God and Satan. It's also outlined here as a battle between good and evil. And ultimately, God crushes Satan. Satan is defeated. He is a defeated foe. But right now, he is a roaring lion seeking to defeat God's people by having them choose what is wrong, by having them sin. And he attacks the people of God, and he attacks them in two ways. First, he attacks them from the outside. We see this in Acts with the persecutions, attacks from the outside. Paul says here, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. Then in verse 7, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. Why were those who were serving Christ having to risk their necks and being thrown in jail? Because the enemy was attacking from the outside. And, and to preach the name of Jesus, to claim the name of Jesus, meant that you might get thrown in jail, you might be tortured, you might be ostracized from your community. And the believers were experiencing all of that as they experienced attack from the outside. And in the same way that the enemy set up a world system that stands against God's people in Paul's day, the enemy has set up a world system that stands against God's people today. We see those attacks in all sorts of areas where the world values certain ways that we use our tongue that are very different from the ways God calls us to use our tongue. The world values certain ways that we might seek contentment or happiness that are very different than the ways that God says we're to seek contentment or happiness. The world values 
certain things when it comes to gender, sex, sexuality, family, that are very different than the things that God says he has established for family and sex and gender. There is a great difference between the world's attack through the work of Satan and God's design for us as people. And God calls us to be a people who stand together, right, as soldiers, arm in arm in this battle. We are united together with Christ, and we need that encouragement of each other to stand against that attack. When I was a freshman in high school, I missed a day of school. And I went back to school the next day, and I'd missed a math test on the day I was gone. And so I had to take that math test after school. It took me a half an hour to complete the math test, and when I was done, I then went to track practice. The problem was, I was now a half an hour late to track practice. Right? The track team had already left. They were already on a run someplace. And so when I got there, the track coach said, well, Matt, I want you to go and do this four-mile run that we often did. Okay? And I headed off on a four-mile run by myself. I started running for a while, and I reached a place where I was like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Running doesn't feel that good. Right? Running's terrible, you guys. <laughs> there are a handful of you out there that are like, I love running. No, you are crazy people. Running is terrible. Absolutely terrible. And so as I was running along, uh, I, I, <laughs> amen. Somebody likes running. I love it. As I was running along, suddenly I realized, well, I'm supposed to run out on this road. I'm supposed to come back on this road. If I just stop here and walk across one of the roads that connects these two roads, then I can just run back and I'll have run two miles and it'll be like I ran the full four. And so ninth grade Matt made that decision. Stopped running, started walking across that cross street, came to the other place, began running again on the way back, got back, my coach was there, I said, oh, so tired, good run. Now the next week, coach sent us out uh, as a team to do the same run. And I was running with a group of guys that often ran together on these runs, and they wanted to push themselves to see if they could do this run faster than we'd ever done it. And so we set out, and as we're going, people are encouraging each other, and people are saying, come on, let's keep going faster. you gotta, you know, you got to go from the back to the front, and there's a lot of encouragement, and let's go going on within that. And we reached the road where I stopped and cut across, and I felt a certain amount of guilt, but no temptation whatsoever to just stop and walk across at that point. We kept encouraging each other and strengthening each other as we completed that run. We did the full four miles, got in, never once tempted to stop, take a shortcut. It was completely different when I was running with a community of encouragement that was strengthening me along the way and whom I was strengthening. And God calls us to come and be a part of this community of encouragement so that we can strengthen each other as the enemy brings his attacks. Because they're constant. The attacks are constant from the outside all around us. And he says, stand together against those temptations. Stand in what is right. But the enemy doesn't just attack us on the battlefield from the outside. 
he also attacks the church from the inside. Can you see where it still says outside right there? That's a typo. It should say inside. So in your mind, in your notes, change that. It should say we face attack from the inside. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Satan doesn't just attack the church from the outside, all those bad people out there. I would say that Satan's most effective attacks come from inside the church. And if you don't believe that, just read the first few chapters of Acts and see how the attacks from the outside only strengthened the church all the more and the attacks from the inside actually caused division. Satan wants to attack the church from the inside. And what are the two things he wants to do to the church from the inside? He wants to create divisions. He wants to cause divisions. And then he wants to create obstacles contrary to the doctrines they've received. He wants to compromise on doctrine. Those are the two things that Satan wants within the church. He wants divisions and he wants compromise. Now, I think that this is something that's easier for me to understand. If I go back to the boxes that we talked about uh, two or three weeks ago. You remember these? What was the black box? The black box represented those things that are clearly taught in Scripture. Right? There are things that are clearly taught to us in Scripture, and the black box represents those things. What was the gray box? The gray box represents those things about which the Scripture doesn't speak. But we still have to make decisions. We still have opinions in these areas. What is Satan's great desire? His great desire when it comes to these gray box areas is to cause divisions among us. To take things that are not central to what God has taught us and make them so important in our heart that we actually have divisions within the body over these gray box issues. We looked at Romans 14 and the first part of 15 in detail to say this should never be, right? Gray box issues are always to fade into the background. We, we talked about what some of these were, like how do you school your kids or, or which candidate do you support or what do you eat or drink or how do you use the resources given? All, all of these kinds of gray box areas about which the Scripture doesn't clearly speak, these are to fade into the background, He wants division in these areas. What does he want in the black box areas where the Bible clearly speaks? He wants compromise. He wants Christians and pastors to compromise the truth of the Scripture. And we see that from time to time. We see compromise in some places where pastors have abandoned God's clear teaching about creation purposes for men and women, about sex, about what constitutes sin, about whether there is such a thing as sin. We have seen pastors and Christians compromise the gospel of Jesus because it is harder to fill a room if you're going to use words like sin, punishment, wrath of God. And so there has been a compromise to the gospel to make it about having a buddy who will hang out with you all the time. 
or, or having a vitamin that'll help you be more successful in life. A little vitamin Jesus, it'll do wonders for you. Right? And so there have been these compromises to the gospel message that have taken place in Christians and in churches. Not, not everywhere, but in some places. And we recognize that we never want that to be true here. We never want divisions in gray box areas. We never want compromise in black box areas. And we need to stand united against his attack in those things. Satan attacks inside and outside the church, and we have this common battle to stand against him and to stand with the Lord and for the gospel and what is right. right? But that's not all we have in Christ. The final thing that this passage shows us we have in Christ is this. We have a common mission. Right? We have a common bond, a family bond. We have a, a, a common battle that we're involved in. And we have a common mission. Look at the language Paul uses here of those that he's talking about. They're a servant, a patron, fellow workers, worked hard, fellow worker, workers, worked hard, fellow worker. You get the idea that there's, there's a task involved here, right? All of this worker and, and laborer uh, conversation that is taking place, God has called us to a task. It is his great mission to make disciples. That is the task that we all share. Uh, and God has called us to be a part of that. I think we see in this passage that it is not a mission for the few. When we think of the mission of making disciples, we may be tempted to think of, okay, the New Testament. Well, there was Peter and Paul and John. Yeah, okay, it's the big names. But what we see in this passage is Paul lists 38 other essential people who have been a part of making disciples, many of whom have extremely difficult to pronounce names, most of whom you haven't heard of before Romans 16 introduced them to you. And I would contend that the primary disciple-making that has taken place throughout history has taken place through those whose names we'll never know. They're not famous. They're people like us who, who on a worldwide scale, even a Christian worldwide scale, are nobodies. But that is who God has called to be a part of this great mission of His, to accomplish this task. Uh, not just the Pauls, but the Andriaticuses or whoever. That's His call to us. We have this beautiful common mission and we're all a part of it together. Uh, somebody, um, Ruth Green, posted recently on social media, uh, the Christian life isn't like a, uh, a cruise ship in which a small number of people are running around serving and entertaining a large group of people that are hanging out. Uh, the Christian mission, the Christian life is more like a battleship where every person is meant to be a soldier, all doing their job so that we can accomplish the mission that God has given to us. That is a good picture. God has called all of us to be a part of this. Uh, making disciples, that's not Kenny's job alone. That's not Jason's job alone or Sam's job. You get the idea. That is all of our job. He's called all of us to this. The other thing I see in this passage is, not only is the mission for everyone in Christ, but it's meant to be work. We are supposed to bring effort 
to making disciples. Like we're supposed to be invested in it. So that Paul is calling them his co-workers, his co-laborers in all of this. There is meant to be a work and effort that goes into making disciples together. Now there is no more fulfilling work on the planet than being a part of sharing the message of Jesus Christ. God says in Luke chapter 15, every time a sinner repents, there is rejoicing and joy in heaven. God and the angels celebrate, and he desires to share that greatest joy with us by bringing us in to be a part of the mission that he has for us. And as he brings us in to share in that joy, it is the most fulfilling thing that we can be a part of to be a part of this task, this work. But it is work. God intends for us to put forward effort in sharing the message of Jesus with others and in making disciples. And while God has called us to this task, while it takes effort on our part, we also recognize we can never do it successfully on our own. That we can never, ever, ever do it successfully without the power of God working through us. And so we see in the final verses, now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. The mystery of the gospel has been disclosed and God calls us to live out the gospel and to continue to make that mystery known to all of those around us, to continue to make disciples. And we can't do it on our own, verse 35. May he strengthen you to live out the gospel. May he strengthen you to bring the gospel to others. We can't do it without that strength. And so I want to pray for us and for God's strength in that great task that he has given to us. But we're going to go to the Lord's table in just a minute. But before we do, I want to invite you to bow your heads and I am going to pray for over us as a congregation and for God's power to be at work through us, that he would strengthen us, uh, bring that, that, that dynamite power, dunamis power, according to what he can do through us. Father, we're so thankful for the fact that you have brought the gospel into our lives. And for the work of your Holy Spirit bringing us to yourself. We recognize that you've given us work to do. A great mission that lies before us. And that we can't do it in our own. That we need you. So right now I pray for every person who is gathered here. That over the course of this next week. You would give us courage. Gentleness. And wisdom as we share Jesus Christ with others. God, I pray for those that we are going to share with this week, that your spirit would be at work in their lives even now, preparing their hearts and minds for the message of Jesus. Lord, we recognize that no good takes place unless your spirit is opening blind eyes, softening hard hearts. And so we ask for that. Lord, let, let us be 
uh, your witnesses, firmly declaring the goodness of who you are and what you have done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.